You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, This is episode 68 of season 3, episode 133 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. June 1st, 2021, it is a Tuesday, the day after Memorial Day, and I want to talk with you about Russell Shorto's book, The Island at the Center of the World, the epic story of Dutch Manhattan and the forgotten colony that shaped America. But first, I want to talk a little bit about Arizona Governor vetoes 22 bills, including election integrity and anti-critical race theory legislation. There's an article at the Epoch Times. I'll include it in the description for this episode. You can read a little bit more about what's going on here if you haven't seen it yet. But this story I saw yesterday came through as an email because I get subscription uh, emails from the Epoch Times So sometimes if I don't have time to read the actual article, I just see the headline come through and then I come back to that later. I know there's something to come back to later when I have time. This is one of those where I didn't have time to read the article yesterday. I just saw the headline and then this morning when I got up and got my cup of coffee and I'm starting the day and the house is quiet, I actually read through the piece and doubtless... There's more to the story. In fact, I went ahead and did a quick DuckDuckGo search of Arizona Governor Doug Ducey and read through the first two pages of recent headlines just to get a flavor of what are the various outlets saying about this or what are they saying about him? What's the latest? What's the most recent flavor? And it's always interesting When it's something good, according to the established status quo, the headlines are neutral or positive regarding Republican lawmakers, Republican governors, Republican politicians, conservative ideas. When it's something good for the status quo, those folks are at least... Mm, not malicious, or uh, they're not malevolent towards Republicans. If it's something that you and I would consider good, perhaps, as conservatives, as small people, as people without a lot of power and wealth and strings to pull and vested interests, if it's something that we would consider good, it will probably be that most of the headlines from places like msn.com CNN.com, those headlines are going to be much more negative. They're going to highlight some trivial detail and try to make that the big problem in the whole thing. They'll exaggerate some small minor point as if to throw the whole thing out and to distract you from what was actually beneficial or positive there. But in this case, most of the headlines that I see for this Arizona Republican Governor Doug Ducey vetoing 22 bills on May 28th. 22 bills 
22 bills. Most of the headlines choose to emphasize the fact that he wants a budget. He wants to see a budget on his desk before he signs anything. You guys had better get me a budget because I'm really concerned about budgets. Budget, 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 budget. Okay. Why not sign the bills? Or you could just let them set for a minute and say you're just not going to sign them until you get a budget. Why veto them? I guess I'm maybe not sure. Maybe I'm unclear on how that works. And, you know, maybe that's not even possible. Maybe you have an expiration date and you must veto these things. You must veto them. I don't know. I don't know. But that's the headline anyways, is that he vetoed 22 bills, including measures related to election integrity and critical race theory. So is this a cover? I think it's a cover. What do you guys think? I mean, I don't want to sign this because I don't want Arizona to get blasted by corporations. I don't want us to lose our upcoming re-election bids. I don't want us to have the mainstream media coming after us. I don't want my big donors being upset with me and pulling their funding and their support. I don't want the fancy parties that I get invited to to suddenly stop inviting me. So we're not going to pass. We're not going to sign. We're not going to move forward on measures that would ban critical race theory, even though I'm a Republican governor. We're not going to move forward on election reform because I was so central to the concerns about election integrity in 2020. But what's that over there? Oh, look, no, I want, I'm, I want fiscal responsibility. That's what this is all about. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Okay, you bet. Um, I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't. Um, I think that it's one thing to say you want that. It's not an either or, though. These are not mutually exclusive to where you can either ban critical race theory in your state, uh, ban the teaching of critical race theory in public schools, and reform your election so that the process is more straightforward and it's more airtight and it's more secure. I mean, why, why choose one or the other? Why say... I need to have a budget proposal from the legislature on my desk before I'm willing to take a stand on these other things. We give you these things, and then what's to say that you don't have some other thing that you want first? It's just, it, it, it belies a certain lack of integrity and forthrightness, I think, that the real reason for vetoing these is not being given. I don't think it's being given. A similar deal with South Dakota's Governor Kristi Noem when she vetoed legislation that would have barred biological males from playing in girls' sports leagues. She vetoed it because she said that the language in the bill was not quite 100% what she wanted to see, and it was going to open the door to a lot of litigation, a lot of things like the NCAA suing the state or pulling out of college sports in the state of South Dakota or boycotting the state of South Dakota. It was going to lead to a lot of problems. 
And, you know, it's funny because she didn't end up scoring any points for South Dakota by doing that. The left doesn't love her any better. President Biden's administration still tried to put the kibosh and still is, to my knowledge, putting the kibosh on fireworks for the 4th of July at Mount Rushmore. And, of course, they're not being entirely honest either about their reasons. They're saying it's because Native American tribes contest the appropriateness of that. Well, that's not some new recent development. That's you guys being anti-American, hating the legacy of America, wanting to turn the page on the American Republic and bring about pure democracy more fully, bring about socialist reforms more fully. And you don't like us all thinking about the Founding Fathers and the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You don't like us thinking about those things because right now those things are in the way. So Christy Nome doesn't score any points with the Biden administration and the left for having vetoed this legislation. Not that I see. I don't see her having scored any points. I don't think that Doug Ducey in Arizona is genuine. In fact, I think in Christy Nome's case, she thought maybe she could conserve her ammunition on the girls' sports, the women's sports issue. I'll veto this so that the LGBTQ uh, agenda lobby movement doesn't come out with the knives for me. I think it was just this one issue that she lost her courage, lost her intestinal fortitude on. But in the case of Doug Ducey, I suspect corruption. I suspect that this is really first and foremost about his having been complicit in election fraud that occurred in the 2020 election. He was complicit. He's part of the Republican establishment. And they wanted Trump out. And they were willing to accommodate fraud on the part of the Democratic Party in order to maintain the status quo. So, of course, he doesn't want to sign election reform bills. Of course, he doesn't want to sign election reform bills. But let's make it about, I want a budget on my desk. You guys need to do your job. Hmm. They need to do their job. How about you do your job? How about, how about that? Why, why don't we make that the headline, that you're not doing your job? 22 bills? 22. You vetoed 22 bills. That's, that's crazy. That's just absolutely crazy to me. Moving on, though, and not talking at length about the bad words that I used when I very first read that headline yesterday, and my children corrected me. My son, one of my sons corrected me, said, Dad, language. Uh, and I apologized. I said, no, nope, you're right. Right, 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 right. I shouldn't use that kind of language. And I apologize. I need to find better verbs and better nouns to express my feelings on this issue, on this development. Not getting into that, let's move to the main subject of this episode, which is Russell Shorto's The Island at the Center of the World, the epic story of Dutch Manhattan and the forgotten colony that shaped America. I'm almost done with this one. I haven't finished it quite yet, but I've got less than an hour remaining, which should take me about 
30 minutes to listen to when I listen on double speed. Publisher's summary on Audible says, In a landmark work of history, Russell Shorto presents astonishing information on the founding of our nation and reveals in riveting detail the crucial role of the Dutch in making America what it is today. In the late 1960s, an archivist in the New York State Library made an astounding discovery. 12,000 pages of centuries-old correspondence, court cases, legal contracts, and reports from a forgotten society. The Dutch colony centered on Manhattan, which predated the 13 original American colonies. For the past 30 years, scholar Charles Gehring has been translating this trove, which was recently declared a national treasure. Now Russell Shorto has made use of this vital material to construct a sweeping narrative of Manhattan's founding that gives a startling, fresh perspective on how America began. In an account that blends a novelist's grasp of storytelling with cutting-edge scholarship, the island at the center of the world strips Manhattan of its asphalt, bringing us back to a wilderness island, a hunting ground for Indians populated by wolves and bears that became a prize in the global power struggle between the English and the Dutch. Indeed, Russell Shorto shows that America's founding was not the work of English settlers alone, but a result of the clashing of these two 17th century powers. In fact, it was Amsterdam, Europe's most liberal city, with an unusual policy of tolerance and a polyglot society dedicated to free trade that became the model for the city of New Amsterdam on Manhattan. While the Puritans of New England were founding a society based on intolerance, on Manhattan the Dutch created a free trade, upwardly mobile, melting pot that would help shape not only New York, but America. The story moves from the holes of power in London and The Hague to bloody naval encounters on the high seas. The characters in the saga, the men and women who played a part in Manhattan's founding, range from the philosopher René Descartes to James, the Duke of York, to prostitutes and smugglers. At the heart of the story is a bitter power struggle between two men, Peter Stuyvesant, the autocratic director of the Dutch colony, and a forgotten American hero named Adrian van der Donk, a maverick, liberal-minded lawyer whose brilliant political gamesmanship, commitment to individual freedom, and exuberant love of his new country would have a lasting impact on the history of this nation. So that is the publisher's summary for Russell Shorto's The Island at the Center of the World on audible.com. Pick it up if American history is interesting to you, if history in general is interesting to you. It is a fascinating read. I would say mostly because it is not the emphasis that you usually get or that I've usually gotten when I read about the history of America. There are notes in this book that remind me of Colin Woodward's American Nations because Colin Woodward talks in American Nations about these distinct regions of the United States of America and some of what is Canada and some of what is Mexico. He talks about these distinct regions wherein you had an early imprinting of culture from the home country when that region was very first settled by people from, for instance, the Netherlands, or for instance, Scotland, or for instance, uh, Scandinavia, 
right? So you have these, this early imprinting of culture, of attitudes, of religious conviction, of religious practice, of political philosophy, of economic systems. You have this early imprinting of various modes of thought and ways of organizing communities and homes and families and individuality that help to shape what we now call New York, for instance. And the Dutch have a lot of uh, influence very, very early on, even during the American Revolution. You can't understand quite the way that the state of New York or the colony of New York, I should say, prior to being the state of New York, but you can't understand how New York, one way or the other, colony or state, relates to the question of what to do with British rule, whether to throw off the British yoke or or whether to stay safely in the fold. You can't fully understand that unless you look at the history of a century prior when this was a Dutch colony. And what's interesting to me, not to give too much away, but what's interesting to me is the manner in which the Dutch colony of the New Netherlands or New Amsterdam as the city on Manhattan, the way that this colony of Dutch surrendered to the English without a fight, and all the while knowing that it's part of this broader Dutch empire, the people of this colony in the New World would rather join England than fight for what's theirs. They don't have any special love and loyalty to the Dutch per se because they're polyglot enough, because they're multicultural enough that what's the difference? English or Dutch, what's the difference? And interestingly enough, they end up retaining their culture by and large, whether you fly an English flag above above the colony, above the governor's mansion, whether you fly the Dutch flag, whether you fly eventually the American flag, the flag of the United States of America above the governor's palace. Any way you slice it, New York is New York. We're our own thing, they think to themselves. We do our own thing. We came here to do what we're doing right now, and we're doing it, and we're going to continue on doing it, regardless of who our larger body politic is at any given point in our history. They relate to the Civil War a bit differently as well. They relate to the War on Terror. If you fast forward to recent decades, they related to that differently, in large part because they themselves were the ones that were targeted and attacked. But it brings up an interesting question, and Russell Shorto brings up this question. Why was the World Trade Center the target of the 9-11 attacks, in addition to the Pentagon. But why, if you were going to pick any American city, why attack New York City? Well, a large part of the reason is because the Al-Qaeda terrorists recognized that New York City is symbolic. It's at the core of this open-minded, polyglot, melting pot, Uh, mindset that America has, this inclusive, tolerant, open-minded, permissive approach 
to life and culture and society. And we've exported that as a country, similar to how the Dutch exported their open-mindedness to America by way of New Amsterdam, the New Netherlands. By way of this colony, they imprinted their mindset, their open-minded, free-trade, live-and-let-live mindset on America. So also, America has imprinted that mindset across the globe. And so it's interesting to get into the details of how this colony developed, who the pivotal figures were, how did they interact with the Indians. Of course, it gets a lot of press. How little was paid for the island of Manhattan itself. It was just a hunting ground. It wasn't developed at all. There was nothing there to speak of. And the Dutch immediately saw a value in this land, in this location, which the tribes at that point did not see. They didn't see this being what it turned into in our day, where it is a cosmopolitan, world-class city. Now, New York City drives me crazy in its politics and its attitudes. I would not want to live there, but you can't deny that it is a major economic powerhouse. You can't deny that it is a very significant influencer of American culture. It's less, I would say now, in recent years than it has been at various other times. But then again, New York City and the state of New York has always been viewed throughout my lifetime and I think throughout this nation's history has always been viewed as a bit of a spoiler. I think that's the way to put it. You have other states that are wanting to pursue these high ideals and these principles and to enshrine those. And New York seems like it's always coming in and poo-pooing that for the sake of its own interest. It puts its own interest ahead of the interest of the country and kind of elbows its way to the front of the crowd to let everybody know what it thinks needs to happen right now and what its priorities are and what its interest is. And some people are persuade, persuaded by that. Some people in the crowd of states are convinced that that sounds really good. And so those states, those people follow the lead of New York and think, why not? But then you have the reaction, especially in middle America, to New York City and the mindset of New York City that you guys are kind of jerks, right? Like you're so open-minded, your brains have fallen out and you don't have any good sense sometimes. You live in this bubble. New York City is a world unto itself and you think that the world revolves around you people. And meanwhile, we're out here and we've got minds of our own as well and we've got our own interests as well and we see things a little bit differently and maybe sometimes being polyglot and inclusive is not so great. And if you would listen for half a minute instead of insulting us and deriding us and mocking us on Saturday Night Live, which is a New York City production, if you would just be quiet and listen for a minute, we could tell you some things that you have forgotten over the centuries. The 17th century was quite a while ago, and you guys have built yourselves up hubristically 
in your own minds, you think that you're so open-minded, but you're not so open-minded when it comes to middle America. You think you're so broad-minded and you're so inclusive and tolerant, but you're not so broad-minded, inclusive, and tolerant when it comes to people from the middle part of the country that you say is flyover country. You hop a plane from New York City to Los Angeles, New York City to Chicago, and you think that you've seen the country and all that farmland and ranch land and mining and logging all of that oil and gas extraction that you fly over, that hunting and fishing, all of that is a nuisance to you. And we need to know our place and we need to understand that our betters are speaking right now when you come to the microphone and when you get in front of a TV camera. That's concerning, but it's not without historical precedent. And you see the seeds of what I would characterizes New York's arrogance. You see those seeds planted in Russell Shorto's book. That's my sentiment. That's not what he's trying to communicate. He's not saying, look how arrogant these people were. He thinks it's great. He thinks it's fantastic. He's probably from New York, I would bet you, or from some one of these cosmopolitan, well-connected cities. He's got some other books that Look interesting. I had read already Descartes' Bones by Russell Shorto a number of years ago, but I haven't read any more than that one and then this one that I'm almost finished with. He's got one about the city of Amsterdam, which I think would be a good follow-up to this one about Dutch Manhattan. And he's also got one called Revolution Song, which, based on the way he portrays the Puritans as being these intolerant, stuffy, backwards, uh, intolerable people relative the Dutch who were so broad-minded. Based on that, I I don't know how much I'm going to love his perspective on the broader American Revolution and what forces were at play there. But still, if he's a good writer and he's got some interesting facts to bring to the table, I'd like to read what he has to say and consider it and factor it into the equation. And he might say more than he realizes in the process. He might say some things that are illuminating in ways he did not intend or appreciate because there's an echo chamber right now. There's an echo chamber when it comes to revising history and looking at certain details and emphasizing those certain details. There's an echo chamber which for our collective interests and our individual well-being we need to speak into from outside of and we need to break up so that it's not such an echo chamber so we don't get tunnel vision so we don't get to thinking that we are so very wise in our own eyes and become fools thereby i look at the island of the center of the world the island at the center of the world having these two characters that are mentioned peter stuvesant and adrian van der donk In the one case, the former guy is the director of the Dutch colony. He's sent by the uh, Dutch West Indies Company to replace a previous ineffectual leader who had lost the confidence of the colonists. The colonists, before Stuyvesant uh, takes power, assumes command, They have appealed to the homeland, 
asking for a more representative form of government. They want to have elected bodies of men who help to make decisions in the colony because they've just come off of some unnecessary conflict, as they see it, with the local Indians and a lot of tit-for-tat where we strike out against them and then they strike back and then we strike back and we strike back and they strike back. And they don't like that. They think that was all very unnecessary and they're not happy with the direction that the colony is being taken in by this uh, previous director, Kiefer. And then they get Stuyvesant. And he is a soldier. He's a guy walking around with a peg leg with big fat lips and a very soldierly mindset. And he is going to give orders, and he expects those orders to be obeyed. He expects that when he is given the position of director, that means he directs, and everybody else listens. I tell you guys what to do, and you do it. That's the way this goes. Meanwhile, you have this guy, Adrian Vanderdonk, who is a lawyer, and he is part of a long line of efforts to try and get representative government in this Dutch colony. And he's always maneuvering and trying to push back against this autocratic, centralized command mindset and approach. He's always trying to basically get democracy, whether they were thinking of it in those terms, not that they were unaware of ancient Greek ideas of democracy, rule of the people, but that's what he's going for. And that's what the people are trying to get him to help them pursue and realize. And so there's this tug of war and there's this battle of wills and this battle of wits and this maneuvering and posturing back and forth where now he's got to step lightly because this was just done and acted on and attempted. And now that guy's got to come up with a good response and what's his next move going to be. And let's throw a punch, so to speak, in a, um, you know, tactical way. And then we'll brace for impact when the return punch comes. Lots of that kind of stuff with Vanderdonk going back to the home country, going back to The Hague and trying to make his case to the powers that be in the Netherlands for why the people in this colony are not just soldiers and prostitutes and, you know, slaves, essentially, why they should be regarded as citizens with certain rights and why they feel that their rights are not being respected, why they feel like they need to have a representative body in the colony in order to secure their rights and in order to secure the best interests of not only their community, but the whole empire, the Dutch empire as a whole. It's an interesting back and forth, and you see as time goes on and the English end up taking this colony without a shot but showing up with a larger force and naval support and all that, you see even as Stuyvesant is surrendering the colony against his better judgment, against his desire to fight because the people don't want to fight, they don't want to fight and defend their colony, They like it just fine the way that it is, and they don't want to lose their homes, their families. They don't want their city to be sacked. 
as he surrenders, one of the things he's able to work out and negotiate with the English is that essentially, for the most part, at the end of the day, things are going to continue on as they have. Even though it's going to be an English flag flying above the governor's mansion and above the city moving forward, even though the English are now going to take possession of these records and they're going to rule and govern the colony as one of their holdings, as just another of their holdings in the new world, there's going to be a maintaining of the status quo. And in fact, more than that, the representative form of government that people like Vanderdonk were pushing for is going to actually be respected. It's going to be put in place, even though Stuyvesant has resisted that, had pushed against it, had taken umbrage at the usurping of any measure of his power. Now, all of a sudden, he sees the benefit when it's not going to be eroding his power so much as eroding the English power over the colony. He sees the benefit and he's persuaded at the last and is able to get that worked out. But how much sense does that make, really, of how New Yorkers, how the New York State mindset has come down to the present as it is? You get an autocrat like Cuomo, for instance, Andrew Cuomo, and he rules like a little dictator through COVID, and he's untouchable and he's arrogant, right? What are you going to do about it, right? I'm going to talk down to these reporters and threaten them. I'm going to be sexually harassing women. I'm going to be putting COVID positive uh, patients in nursing homes with the most vulnerable segment of the population, killing tens of thousands of those people in nursing homes by infecting them. You thought smallpox blankets were nefarious. How about COVID patients being housed in nursing homes? Are you just trying to murder elderly people? Is that what you're doing? Andrew Cuomo does all of that, and we marvel at it. Like, how in the world can this state produce such corruption, such arrogance, such tyranny? But the answer is that they're so permissive, and they're so open-minded, and they're so tolerant, and they're so polyglot that at a certain point, they hit a critical mass of chaos and they either can't be bothered to notice that they've put a tyrant over themselves or or they're just that hungry for any leadership, any authority in society to the point that they're willing to even have bad authority because it's better than the absolute chaos and the bedlam that otherwise rules and reigns their affairs. And because they see themselves as superior to the rest of the country, they don't listen to outside calls for circumspection, inspection, introspection. They don't listen to pleading from people in flyover country who don't know anything, apparently, and who are backwards and they're clinging to God and guns and their Bibles and their antiquated notions of there being such a thing as right and wrong. They don't listen to us. They know better, don't you know? But so also, at the end of the day, if everything starts unraveling for Governor Cuomo, he will 
bet your life savings on it, he will try and throw everything back to the people as if to say that democracy is what it's all about. Rule as an autocrat as long as you can get away with it. And then once the jig is up, pretend that you were for democracy. You were for the rule of the people all along. That is the cycle in New York City. And I would say that that has been the pattern of a great many American politicians in our nation's history, even down to the present. Biden was elected democratically, supposedly, unless massive fraud is actually what carried him to the White House. He is a man representing the will of the people, supposedly, and yet good luck finding a well-attended event in which he is going to be the one speaking. I saw a headline yesterday and read just the first few paragraphs saying that he had hosted an event on whitehouse.gov for Memorial Day, and there were a measly 200 people that actually tuned in and watched and listened. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. 200 people in a nation of 340 million people, only 200 people. This is the guy who garnered more votes than any president in our history. This is the guy, and he can only pull in 200 viewers on Memorial Day. Yeah. Enjoy the nice long weekend. Right. I'm not buying it. But that's all for now. That's all for this episode. We've got to leave it there. I'm interested to hear what others think of this book if they happen to pick it up. And if you have some other books that are similar in nature to this, you can recommend. Send them my way. I'm hoping here soon to start reading some books by the Puritans. I think maybe they get a bad rap because of the mindset which has taken hold in modern uh, days and modern era um, culture development and education and politics. I think the Puritans have gotten too bad of a rap and it might be worthwhile to hear them in their own words and what they thought and how they organized their society from somebody who's not got an ax to grind, who's not just in principle opposed to any restrictions on human behavior any attempts to organize society according to what the scriptures say. I think it'd be interesting to read some Puritan writers. And so I plan to start with Jeremiah Burroughs and the rare jewel of Christian contentment. I'm going to read through that. It comes recommended by Paul Pavlik, who has read it, I guess, or has read some of it, and he's going to read it again. We'll get to discuss it and talk back and forth about it. But... We'll get into that in a future episode. We'll tell you more about it once we have read that one. For now, i got to run, but as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.